Picture yourself navigating the depths of the ocean, with endless shades of blue surrounding you as you struggle to differentiate one direction from another. In front of you appears a friendly diver. This diver leads you to discover the vibrant and colorful coral reefs, teeming with life, each species unique and thriving in its specialized niche. The diver continues to lead you onward, unearthing the hidden treasures of the underwater world, transforming your journey into a fascinating exploration of marine biodiversity and aquatic wonders. Now imagine that the market your business operates in is that vast murky ocean, where countless products and services compete for attention, making it difficult for potential customers to understand what makes your offering exceptional. Positioning is the process that transforms the vastness of the market into a vivid, thriving ecosystem, where you discover where your product or service can be found and appreciated by your target audience. April Dunford, that nautical mastermind in our metaphor, is that guide who can help you navigate the complex waters of SaaS and help you discover your product's unique place in the market. With her extensive experience and deep understanding of the art and science of positioning, April's insights can be the beacon that illuminates the true value of your offering and captures the attention of your customers with a winning sales pitch. In today's episode, we dive deep into the world of positioning with April Dunford, exploring her tried and true strategies that have helped countless businesses uncover their competitive advantage. From Paddle, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, April Dunford talks to Patrick Campbell about product positioning. They talk about why positioning isn't about market research, how to actualize positioning, the structure of a solid sales pitch, enabling your sales team with a new pitch, and a Q&A from SaaS Talk 2022. After you finish the episode, check out the show notes for an in-depth field guide focused on how you can implement a winning sales strategy in your business. Then, while you're leaving your five-star review of the podcast, tell us what advice April gave you that resonated most. First up, April talks about why positioning isn't about market research. Hey everyone, I'm Patrick, Chief Strategy Officer over at Paddle, founder of ProfitWell. I have one of my favorite people. We see each other like every other weekend, or not weekend, in week. Different parts of in different world. conferences. It is my favorite thing to be like, oh, I'm in Toronto. And it's like, oh, hey, what's up, April? Like, yeah, that type of thing, because we follow each other. But April, why don't you introduce yourself? I'm really excited to talk to you, actually. Sure. So I'm April Dunford. My background is I was a repeat vice president of marketing for 25 years. I did seven venture-backed startups. Six of those got acquired. and about All because of April. Clearly. And um, about six years ago or so, I made the switch to consulting. And now what I do is very niche Like I do, I only do positioning work. I work with B2B tech companies, mainly SaaS, but some not SaaS, some hardware and whatever. And we work on positioning and how to translate positioning into a, a sales narrative or a story. No, that's cool. And we were just talking actually, because I think that, so one, April has the book on positioning. I feel like I'm a broken record because everyone talks about your book. And so April's book, just to basically gush a little bit about her book, 
it's not only a great book because it teaches all about positioning and what you should do and how you should structure it, but it's also in like the most straightforward manner. Like instead of having to read between the lines and the tea leaves, it's like, oh, here's the one book you could use to get this right. But I think what's really interesting is, is maybe just without going into the past two episodes of Protect the Hustle that you've uh, basically explained positioning, like what is positioning? What do people get wrong with it? What do they need to get right with it? Like, let's give us a good overview. When I started as a positioning consultant, like the funny thing about being a positioning consultant is the conversations I'd have is I'd say, hey, I'm a positioning consultant. And the founders would say, yeah, yeah, that's great. That's like branding, right? And I'm like, no. And they say, oh, it's like messaging. I'm like, no, actually, all of those things kind of come after positioning. So positioning defines how your company is the best in the world at delivering some value that a well-defined segment of customers really cares about. And so in my terminology, positioning is really about defining who exactly do we compete with? And that includes status quo. How are we different? What is the value that we could deliver that no other product can? What kind of customers really care about that value? So what does a best fit customer look like for us? And then what's the market that we intend to win? So the work that I do is all about helping companies get really, really tight on that, which is the foundation of everything good that we do in marketing and sales. And one thing that I found interesting is, and correct me if I'm wrong, you don't hammer the market research elements of this as much as- Yeah, I know. Like structuring. Like why- Why yeah, is that? That's super controversial. Yeah. Why are you yeah. terrible? No, super controversial. Yeah. It's a bit of a cheat. And so I get away with it for a couple of reasons. So one- I'm only working with B2C, if it was, or sorry, B2B. If it was consumer, then you absolutely would have to do the market research beforehand. I'd have to interview customers. I'd have to do all that. Not only do I only do B2B, I have a big preference for companies that have a salesperson involved somewhere in the purchase process. So if there's a salesperson involved somewhere in the purchase process, then we actually know a lot about how customers buy. We know what the status quo is in the account. We know what other solutions end up on the short list. We should know if our salespeople are doing their job, why they picked us, why they didn't pick the other folks. How I got to this was the first bunch of workshops that I did, I structured them as these big three-month engagements. I'm going to go interview all the customers, do all this stuff. Then I present the research back to the founding, the, the team, and half the people in the room are like, wow, that's so interesting. The other half of the people in the room are looking at me like an idiot and saying like, dude, we knew that. What I decided was, Really what the issue is, is if you're B2B and there's a sales motion in there somewhere, if I can get the right people in the room, I can pull it out of you. Because sales knows something, product knows something, marketing knows something, customer success knows something, the founder knows something, you don't know all the, all know the same things. So if I can get everybody together in the room, I can pull it out, we can skip that. That's controversial. Like the, the, market, yeah. the customer research people would be like, what? I think the only reason it's controversial is because it's probably stage, right? Like those earlier stage folks who have no idea what's going on. But earlier stage folks, I disqualify. Like yeah. often folks come to me when it's too early to really yeah. do positioning work because they're so early in that, you know, they're new in the market and what they really have is a positioning thesis. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Like we think this is the market we play in. We think this is who we compete with. We think this is why people, but you don't know. Yeah. And you haven't sold enough yet to actually see the patterns in who loves our stuff and why. So if you come to me and you're too early, I'll disqualify you yeah. because I can't pull it out of you because you don't know it yet. That makes sense. Yeah. No, so I think you, that's like, like a lot of people doing customer research, what they're actually doing is customer discovery. Yep. Well, that's the thing too. Like 
I talk about personas or ICPs like quite yeah. a bit. The thing I typically will tell like a series A or beyond company is like, you know something about your customer, just get it in one place. Right. And then we can validate or invalidate anything else, but right. there's enough there that you should be able to get moving and not worry about like research right. being the thing that like stops you from developing your pricing yeah, and yeah, the yeah, packaging yeah. and those types Can of I things. tell you what I hear a lot in companies? Yeah. We'll go in to do this positioning thing. And the first step is... I'll say, so if your product didn't exist, what would a company do? What would one of your companies? And that is such a contentious question across the executive team. You would not believe how much disagreement there is on that question. So sales, what sales answers there is whoever you lost your last deal to. Oh, it's Oracle. It's Oracle. We didn't write a... Meanwhile, they're losing 40% of their deals, 50% of their deals sometimes to Excel or the intern. But sales doesn't consider that competitive. Then you go to product and product says... Oh my God, we have so many competitors. Holy shit, here they are. 9,000, they'll list a thousand things, right? That they've like Googled. And then you look over at sales and you say, this one, you ever see one of those in a deal? Sales is like, never heard of those. We're like, cross them off the list. If the customer doesn't know them, you don't actually have to position against them. They never end up on a short list. Product thinks the list is this long. Sales thinks the list is this long. And the reality is somewhere in the middle. If I'm in there, again, I can pull it out of you. So part of the reason why you can't get clear on your positioning is you can't get clear on what you're trying to position against. If you don't think Excel is at the mix, well, you're not going to try to position against Excel, even though you're losing half your deals to Excel. Next, April talks about how to actualize positioning. Yeah, and this is where I like, we were talking before, it's like, like you said, you're not doing the positioning for them, you're pulling it out we're of pulling it out. you end up working with, which is interesting. Yeah. The one thing, not to go into the book, I feel like we've covered, actually, so we positioning, did, we we're did, against, we well, no, 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 we've we had two other podcasts on this same <laughs> podcast where we've recorded all about the book. That was me, that wasn't her. So that was me going deep on it, because I was like, let me get through the lines here. Who's good? The thing after the exercise, right? So we figured out our positioning, we figured out who we're against, what we're for, all these other pieces. How do I actually actualize that? This is an interesting question because when I started doing this work, I thought I can get the team together. We'll work through the component pieces of positioning. And then, you know, it's your job to go figure out how to build messaging around that and go figure out whatever. And so I'd come back to the company like a few weeks later and say, how's it going? And usually what I get is the, the messaging looks good. Website's all updated. But if you walk over to sales, sales is still using the same sales pitch. And it's like, what the hell happened over in sales? And sales was in the meeting when we did the new positioning. So why didn't it translate? And basically sales would come back to me and say, we don't actually get how to tell the story. I had to add this bit on the end of my workshops where we do the whole positioning thing and then we take it and we put it in a story. And what that story actually is, is a sales pitch. We need that in order to test the positioning. It's actually the best way to test positioning. When I wrote my book, I thought, we know how to build a sales pitch, right? Everybody knows how to build a sales pitch. It turns out, no, we don't know how to build a sales pitch. In fact, 90%, probably more than that, of the companies that I work with, if you look at what sales is doing in a first call with a qualified prospect, it's a product walkthrough. They're not doing any positioning. They're just like feature, 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 feature. Where what we should be doing is like, think about it this way, B2B. How does a B2B purchase get made? Let's say it's accounting software. Head of accounting wakes up and says, we need new accounting software. They don't actually do the search themselves. They designate that to somebody on their team. You know, you, Janet, go figure out what accounting software. That person is like 
They've never bought accounting software before. They don't know who the vendors are in accounting software. They don't know what half the features are. They go online, there's a thousand different companies. And then what do we do? We put them in the feature walkthrough. Does that help them figure out why pick you over everyone else? No. Nope. They have to come up with their own framework. They have to come up with their own framework. Yeah. So why wouldn't we just give them a framework? Got we it. actually eat, sleep, and breathe this shit. Like, why yeah. would we not say, look, here's how the market goes. These guys are for really big companies. These guys are for people that care about this. These guys are for people who care about this. But companies like you, you actually have to worry about these things. That's what we're for. Yeah. Now, let me give you the demo. Even if we just did that, like, again, we're losing 40 to 60% of our deals to no decision. No decision. Because that person gets in, does the feature walkthrough with like nine companies, signs up for a whole bunch of trial versions. They're like, I don't know how to make a choice here. I don't want to look like a dummy to my boss. I don't want to get fired if I pick the wrong thing. So what do I do? No decision. This is literally the most fearsome competition we have in B2B is the champion of the deal doesn't know how to make a choice confidently. And instead they kick the can down the road. Let's do it next year. Let's pick it next year. So we, as like the vendor, we're in the perfect position to actually come in and say, look, let me tell you how to think about the accounting market and just split it up for them and tell them. And they can disagree with you or whatever, but it, you know, most of the time they'll go, oh, wow, because we've literally thought about this 10 million thousand times more than the person sitting across from us. And yet somehow we expect them to do all that work. We expect them to understand how our features translate yeah. to value. We expect them to understand how the whole market gets segmented. Yeah. How would they know? It's kind of interesting because I'm thinking through the last couple of like vendor searches I've personally done, two very distinct ones where I was like the terrible prospect because eventually I was just like, oh, I don't know, we're just not going to make a decision. Right. Both of those products or like spaces, I had to come up with the framework. I had to be like, well, it seems like these guys are good at this. These guys are good at that. These guys are good at that. But I don't know, like, do I need this or do I need that? Like, I'm not really sure. And right. I, the easiest decision was not to make a decision. Don't make a decision. And kind of move on. And, it, and then I was like, well, it must not have been that important. Even though in hindsight, the business would have been better off by like making a decision. And I guess like, why? Why is that? Like, I'll is tell it, you why it is. Yeah, yeah. why is I know exactly why it is. Let's get deep. I'll tell you why. Yeah. So we've been taught that it is not cool to talk about our competition, right? Interesting. We don't want to yeah, look yeah. like we're trash in the competition. That's bad. We've also been taught that a customer won't understand anything. Or, sorry, not that they won't understand. That the customer won't believe anything we say about the market because we're biased. And it turns out that's actual bullcrap. So if you look at the research on this, this is a great study. I give you a link to it, but there's a great study about B2B purchase behavior. They did this big longitudinal study and they looked at enterprise B2B software buyers and they said, what do you actually want in a first sales call? And the number one thing was perspectives on the market. And this number two thing was how to make choices. They literally want us to do this. And we're like, oh, we can't do that. Oh, we can't do that. We're going to get in trouble. We're biased. It's we're like, right. we casually will, yeah, it's, it's like we nibble around the edges, we which makes it even worse. Yeah. But we're like, we don't want to talk about it. So for me, like when I started building sales pitches when I was early in my career, like I always thought we do problem solution. But the problem with that is that all my competitors are doing problem solution. It looks just like mine. My pitch looks just like everybody else's. And then I got this job at IBM. And so at IBM, there's a lot of things they do in sales pitches that I would not recommend you copy. I hope I have IBM people in here. But the best thing I thought they did was they never started with features. They never started with a the problem. They didn't start with a market trend. They started with 
here's how we see the market. And they would literally draw a market map. There's a big guys over here and there's this over here and there's this thing over here and there's this thing over here. And we're right here, discuss. And sometimes the customer would say, well, I think that's bullshit, you know, and then we'd have a little back and forth on it. And we're talking about giant deals here at IBM, right? So our typical deal size is like 10 million. Sometimes the whole first call would be just that because the thinking inside there was, if I can't get you aligned to my point of view on the market, I got nothing to sell you. That was eye-opening for me. So then when I left there and I went to my first startup, me and the VP sale, or that my next startup was like startup number four for me. Yeah. But me and the VP sales sat down and I said, we should redo the sales pitch decks. And why don't we try this? We worked this little thing into the beginning. And it was literally, if it was an hour long sales call, it was five minutes at the beginning. And that five minutes at the beginning, we'd say, look, you guys are trying to solve this, right? We know a lot about this. We're in this market. And here's what we see. We see people solve the problem this way, this way, or this way. And here's the pluses and minuses. And oh, look, great big gap. We're the, we're the people that do that. And like double our sales. Just that little wee conversation at the beginning. We're not going to spend all day going blah, blah, blah about the market. But just that little bit. And you could see customers like leaning in and going, oh, yeah. And you'd be like, some people do it like this. You're talking to these guys. Yeah, we're talking to them right now. Well, let me tell you what they're all about. And I could position all my competitors. What's my competitor doing? Feature walkthrough. Too scared to position themselves. I could do it for them. And now April tells you about the structure of a solid sales pitch. Well, ironically, what it does is actually builds trust better because I think that in those markets where it's feature, feature, everyone's doing problem solution, you end up going, well, I know I need a solution. Let me just go with the person I trust the most, like AE, which is very hit or miss, right? Because some of your AEs, like it's just literally, they don't align with you as the buyer as much. But I think that if someone did that, and even if I believe there's a little embellishment, they're not completely wrong. Like this is something. So I feel like I could trust them. I guess my question then is, so it's not problem solution. What is that structure? What is that outline? I did a talk on this this morning. I think so, she's doing a talk on it tomorrow too. No, no, it's today. Oh, it was already today. So see the recording. today. Here's how it works. There's, in my opinion, good sales pitch has two parts. First part is the setup. Second part is the follow through. The setup is where we talk about the market. Second part is where we talk about our stuff. In the setup, there's three pieces. The first piece is what we call the insight piece. So this is like, The problem inside the problem. This is like the thing that I know because I'm in this space. It's why we built the thing the way we built it. The second step on that is here are the alternate solutions we could use and the pluses and minuses of both. That we can do discovery. This is a conversation with the customer. And then the the result of that is step three, which is, look, so if we know this about the problem and we know the pluses, what works and what doesn't work in the market today, a perfect solution for you would look like this. And there's this moment in the sales call where they're either right or they're not. And if they're right, then you go, great, let me show you how we do that. So I can give you an example if you want. You want an example? It's a company in Toronto, they're called Level Jump. I love them. They just got acquired by Salesforce. What they do is sales enablement software. So software to train salespeople. They sell to the head of sales enablement of fast growing tech companies. That's the thing. They only have one big differentiated feature, which is they're built on top of Salesforce And all their competitors were 10 times their size, way more funding and everything else. None of them are. What's the value of being built on top of Salesforce? The value is you can actually measure the results of your sales enablement programs with sales data. That's the itself. That's it, right? 
Now, these, when they do the pitch, their setup goes like this. We start with the insight. So here's their insight. We're sitting across from the head of sales enablement. So instead of just jumping into the feature feature thing, they go, hey, you're the head of sales enablement. Sales enablement is really important, right? You know why it's really important? Because every day your rep's not making quota, it costs you money. Every day your rep's not getting first call, it costs you money, right? That's the insight. And then I say, okay, look, there's lots of ways to solve this problem. There's all these guys. They're basically a CMS. You can tell who's looking at what, but... Does that let you measure the results? No, it doesn't. Or you could use these guys and they're basically an LMS. Does that let you measure the results? No. So here's step three. In a perfect world, if you wanted to prove to your boss whether or not your sales enablement stuff is working, you'd want to show the change in sales results, right? And if you say, right, I got you. I got you. Because I'm the only guy that can do, like, I got you and I haven't even pitched my stuff yet. So then I go, okay, great. And if you lean over and you go, yeah, yeah, man, yeah, I want that. Then you go, great. Let me show you how we do that. Here's the thing. Here's how you measure it. Here's how you, you know, and that's it. All I got to do, if you lean over and said, right, all I got to do is show that my stuff meets that criteria and I'm done. This is where the positioning is so important. Because yeah. you got to find that thing. Well, the, uh, the positioning is the input to that. Yeah. I can't tell that story. Unless I have that. Until I have that. So what we did with Level Jump, for example, was we went through, okay, well, who do you compete with? How do we categorize that? Well, these guys are a CMS. These guys are an LMS. Well, what do you have that they don't have? Well, you've got this built on top of Salesforce. How does that translate to value? Oh, it means I can measure the, you know, I can tell whether or not my sales enabled stuff is working. Who cares a lot about that? Well, my fast growing company, I'm hiring a lot of salespeople. I care a lot about that. So then we say, all right, well, what's the insight there? The insight is everyday reps aren't making quota costs you money, man. That's bad. Then I, you know, and then I build the rest of the sales pitch from that so that the building blocks are all in your positioning. Then I could just map it to this sales pitch structure. When they say no, like when they're like, oh, I don't really find it. Is it how much do you try to teach them? Or is it just kind of like, okay, great. Well, if you don't value this, this is our thing. Right. Like you should go talk to these folks. Right. It's a good question. If I'm doing that setup part right, I am teaching them. Like that is very much a teaching thing. I'm teaching them how to think about the market. I'm teaching them the pluses and minuses of my competitive things. But like, let's use Level Jump as an example. Sometimes they get a head of sales enablement that actually does not want to measure their results because they secretly think they really suck at sales enablement oh, and they don't want their boss to know because maybe they're going to get fired. And that, so basically, if I get to that part where I'm like, you want to measure this, right? And they go, they're disqualified. So move on to the Because they don't care about my value. Yeah. <laughs> I got nothing to sell you. It's you like don't care about that. I got nothing to sell you. It's not worth trying to force it. Either. No, yeah. no. If you, if you didn't understand it there, then it's like there's something about you that's fundamentally yeah. disqualifying. So I guess, interesting side question. There was this big wave. I can't remember who wrote the Medium article, but it was talking about Zora's sales pitch. Sales pitch. And Maybe you don't want to talk about a specific name, but like it was all about, oh, yeah. this, this is a very insight-laden pitch because what Zora basically did, and it's not just them, like Drift did it, Salesforce does it, et cetera. It was very like... Salesforce does not do that. They don't do it. Okay. You know where I'm going. So I know basically they like... Uh, they Salesforce does not do that. Salesforce does this exactly like I know. And like the, they go very market, market, like the world's going to recurring revenue, blah, blah, blah. They like, start with a trend. Yeah. So they pick a trend in the market. Yeah, yeah. And then they position essentially the whole market yeah. as the old thing. Got it. And we're the new thing. Got it. So what's the problem? Well, there's a lot of problems with that. Yeah, like, yeah. what so if there's a lot of new things? And mostly, like, you know, like if I was level jump and I tried to position Seismic, who's just raised $200 million, as the old thing, that's stupid. 
a customer will look at you and say, that's stupid, buddy. That ain't the whole thing. Like you guys are the same names. So is it, is it uh, just, so that's one thing. So I'm not actually giving them a way to think about the market. Like it's too simplistic. So you, now I can do that in a VC pitch because the time frames are longer. So I can say in a VC pitch, I can say, look, this trend is coming and it's going to decimate the market and everyone goes away except me. And I can make a case for that because I'm talking about 10 years from now. But if I'm sitting in with a customer and the customer's got seismic and high spot and level jump on a short list already, and none of those companies are legacy, and you're saying they're legacy, they're old, like that just sounds stupid. So one, it's too simplistic, like old versus new. Here's the second thing. Those other companies are bigger than level jump. They actually look like a safer bet. And so if I go in there and say, the world is changing, everyone goes away except us, you're making new sound kind of risky here. <laughs> like, so new in itself does not have value. Do you find some companies will say they think new means risky, new means not very mature, new means not very many features, new means like, so new in itself is not inherently valuable. So the, in that sales pitch, there's actually no concept of value, which is bananas, right? Like, like if like it, nowhere in that sales pitch do you talk about the value of what you do other than saying we're valuable because we're new. Like it's a, it's kind of a bullshit sales pitch to be honest. Yeah, it's kind of interesting though because I'm curious to how you think about this because the one thing I could say about their sales pitch is I think you're totally right. Do you think your feedback changes with the context? Like if they would add the value piece and have the insight piece, or is it change if we keep in mind like they were trying to go to like Fort. Yeah. And be like, hey, yeah, yeah. What you've been doing for 40 years is really cute. Yeah, yeah. But like, this is the new world. Yes. Is that, does that still, yes. Okay. So I think there are cases where the insight is the trend. It's a trend that you don't see, right? So the, the insight piece is, hey, you know, we've been doing this forever. And this actually has created a new problem. It's a problem inside the problem. And the customer might go, whoa, we haven't thought about that. Yeah, well, let's think about it. If we believe that, then let's look at how you solve the problem. Oh, this versus this, that versus that. I think you still want to paint a picture of the well, market. Tighten that market up, right? You yeah. still want to paint a picture of the market. But then you want to get to look like, so if you believe all of that, what does a perfect solution for you look like? Well, it should tick these boxes, right? Yeah, and I think that's a really good thing. So, so occasionally that pitch will work because... The trend is the insight, but most of the time it's not. Like most of the time, your competitors are also aware of that trend and your competitors are also talking about that trend and your pitch looks exactly like everybody else's. Next, April explains how to enable your sales team with a new pitch. I think that's a really, that's a good insight, mainly because I thank you. A lot of tech pitches end up being old world, new world, old world, new yes. world. They're not wrong. It's just, it's incomplete. It's like going that next level down, I think right. is super, super crucial. Right. I guess we have the setup and then we have kind of the, the what did you call the it? The follow through. The, the follow through. We've set the sales. Do you think that that sales pitch is almost like centrally controlled, like there's version control on it, et cetera? Because how do we stop the problem of every salesperson going, yeah, I know better. This worked for the last three pitches. I'm not going to use those slides or that slide. Yeah. Is it yeah. just training, cup to Jesus moments? Like, talk to us through the practical. It's a lot of those things. In the companies that I work with, we will work on the positioning first. And when we work on the positioning, sales is involved in that. So we have sales, product, marketing, customer success, cross-functional team. We'll work on that together. And then together, we'll work on this sales pitch. So here's what the sales pitch looks like. And then 
There's a very specific way you want to roll this out. Trust me, because I've done this so much. First thing is sales has to be involved in building it like sales leadership. If they're not, sales will never adopt it. That's rule number one. Second thing is when you go roll it out to the sales team, you cannot just heave it over to sales and say, hey, you try this thing out. Do you know what salespeople hate? New sales pitches. They hate them. Even if it's way better, they hate them because they're comfortable with the old sales pitch. They've got all their little cadences and everything. They love the old sales pitch. You come with a new sales pitch, even if it's perfect, they're going to be like, no, we don't like that. Here's how you do it. This is very practical advice. Pick your best salesperson, your best salesperson. You force them. You say, look, sorry, too bad for you this week. We're teaching you the new sales pitch. And they'll go, no, I don't want to. It's too bad. You take the one, your best salesperson, you train them on that thing. Like, and they have to pitch to you until they're feeling comfortable. And then you let them go pitch qualified prospects with you listening in. So usually we do this with head of marketing, head of sales, this good salesperson. We do a bunch of those pitches. And usually what happens is it needs a bit of tuning. But after your best salesperson has done six, seven pitches with that, almost always, this is what happens is they'll say, you know what? This is good. This is good. You guys can stop listening in on this. We're done. Like I'm... I'm good with this deck. Importantly, I'm not going back to the old deck. We call that past. So now the thing has been has been approved. Then I take that rep. I fill them. Like I record on gone calls or whatever. Like here's my best salesperson doing it. Then I take that salesperson to go back and train everybody else on the sales team. Because sales only wanted to listen to sales. And if your best salesperson comes in and says, trust me, people, this works better than the old one. You just got to get used to it. The rest of your sales team will listen. And then somebody has to kind of crack the whip and say, this is the deck. We all do it the same. Like I've worked at companies where we certified everybody. Like every six months you had to go in and do pitch certification and you had to come and pitch me. And if I said you pat failed, you had to go away and come back and do it again. But you kind of get to get in there. Otherwise, what you'll get, the message will drift and you'll end up with, you know, every salesperson for themselves and they're all telling a different story. And that's how the market gets confused. And then just holding accountability through Chorus, Gong, et cetera, just make sure they're doing it. How much leeway do you have on, oh, they added this in there, they added that in there? Like, what do you what do you think is a good guidance? So there's a bunch of things that I think you can be really flexible on in a, in a sales pitch like this. So the exact words they use don't really matter. Like if they don't like that word, they can use another word. But I think the steps matter. And then there's some things that you could be infinitely flexible on, right? Like there's a there's a spot in a good sales pitch for proof, for example. So you say, this is the value we can deliver. Here's the features that enable that value. And then there's a spot where you say, here's the proof we can do what we say we can do. Sometimes that's a case study or whatever. That could be anything. If I'm pitching a bank, I want the case study to be a bank. If I'm pitching an insurance company, I want the case study to be a... You can let your reps go nuts on that and fool around with whatever they want. How your reps handle objections, for example, is wide open. And there'll be objections that come up in the call and they can handle that however they want. You can have a specific spot in the deck where you say, there's three objections and you really want to handle this somewhere in this pitch. I don't care where you do it. You can do it here or there or whatever. So you can have a lot of flexibility on that stuff. But that setup thing, like you really want to nail that setup because if you don't nail the setup, then I haven't accomplished this thing that I want to accomplish, which is I haven't given the buyer a picture of the whole market and I'm likely to lose them to no decision if I don't do that. So you got to do that. And then I got to say, here's the value. Here's how we do it. Here's the value. Here's how we do it. Instead of just a whole bunch of features, I'm barfing them out and I'm not telling you why the features matter. 
who are all the companies that we should go waste their AE's time to see what really good pitch decks are? <laughs> like you mentioned a few, but like who should we sign up for That's fake a, calls? It's a good question. My experience with this is most mature sales organizations, meaning they've got more than 40, 50 sales reps, have a very structured way of doing a sales pitch. And it's funny. And they'll get that from the VP sales or whatever. And usually it's because they've been trained somewhere else. Where that So if you go into like really, really big companies, they actually do a really good job of this stuff. The smaller companies don't. So generally listening in on sales calls or other companies your size is not going to give you. They're just going to be a feature walkthrough, all that stuff. But if you listen in on like Salesforce, I haven't listened to a Salesforce call in a while. But the last time I listened to a Salesforce call, it was beautiful. It was exactly that structure. I'm going to have to go sign up for Salesforce again. Yeah. No, no, I should too and see if that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where do people go wrong with this elsewhere? There's a bunch of ways people go wrong. Like the way that people most frequently go wrong with this is it turns into some little marketing project in the marketing department and that never works. Marketing builds this thing and they build a sales pitch and then they heave it over to sales and sales goes, oh, that's very nice. And they stick it under their chair and they never do it. Having that discipline to say, we're going to do this, we're going to do it with sales, everybody all together. And then, you know, we're going to pick it and we're going to stick it. The other way it goes wrong is the same way people go wrong on positioning is to get bored of their story, even though the story so like, let's perfectly, change let's change it because we're just bored of it. And we think we should. It's like the new VP marketing shows up and says, let's do a rebrand. And there's no reason to do a rebrand. You're just bored of the colors of the fonts or something. People do the same thing with the narrative because they're just bored of it. And make it mine too. Yeah. And so, and I think, you know, if it's working, if nothing has changed in your positioning, nothing should be changing in your sales narrative, you know, and nothing should be changing in your positioning unless there's something changing in the market, like different competitors, different differentiated value, something's happened. Someone's caught up to you. You've done something new. Maybe you made a new acquisition, maybe you released a new feature. If we change the positioning, then we got to go back and look at the narrative. But if nothing's changed on positioning, nothing should change in the narrative. Pick it, stick it, and then have the discipline to just keep running at it. What else should we know about this? Uh, we covered a lot. I'm just thinking. I'm thinking about, I'm, thinking, I'm writing a book about this one. Yeah, maybe the follow-up. Yeah, the follow-up. Yeah, so maybe next year at this time we could talk about that. I'll have you on again. And now, Patrick and April field Q&A from SaaStock 2022. How much discovery is happening in the setup part of this pitch? Yeah, I think setup is the perfect place to do discovery and it should be discovery. And so where the discovery happens is in that discussion of alternative ways of solving the problem and the pluses and minuses of that. It's a, it's a perfect setup for doing discovery because in that you can say, look, we're in this market. We work with companies like you and here's what we see. We see they start off with a shared drive. And that doesn't work because, you know, eventually you don't know who's using what and what's going on. Do you guys use a shared drive? How long have you been using the shared drive? Is it pain in the ass? Yeah? Oh, you don't do that anymore? Well, most people would graduate from that and then they go to a CMS. You guys ever try that? Oh, yeah? Yeah. How'd that work? Was it good? Was it bad? So it should be a back and forth. And what you're doing is discovery around what have they already tried? What is a real pain and what isn't? What resonates with them and what doesn't? While you're also establishing your credibility, like we get to you, we've seen companies just like you, we know what this looks like. It's actually a really good way to do discovery as opposed to what most salespeople would do is they just come in cold. We don't even know what the conversation is about yet. And then it's like therapy, tell me your problems. And you're like, what problems, right? We didn't even, we didn't even put a boundary around the discussion. And so the problem with that kind of discovery is sometimes we get off into 
that has nothing to do with my market, my solution, or why are we even wasting time on this? And then I got to bring them back. Instead, it's like I set them up with the insight and say, hey, today we're here to talk about sales enablement. This is what I see in sales enablement. Then we do the discovery bit. Like, oh, you're using a shared drive. How does that work? Oh, you're using this. Well, who else are you looking at right now? Oh, we would consider these guys like that because they approach the problem this way. And so they're good at this and bad at that. Do you think that? Do you agree with that? You've looked at their stuff already. Like, does that make sense to you? Discovery, discovery should be about waking the customer up to the problem that maybe they weren't completely conscious that they had, right? And good discovery does that. Done well, this discussion of alternate solutions and the pluses and minuses is a really great place to do discovery. It's cool. And the has of grits, how to organize such discovery all is naturally saying this is the interesting customer or big class. But how do they actually initiate the first call back and that they're willing to have such kind of this mounted cult? So how to actually get the person on the phone? How to get them on their phone in the first place? This is a totally different discussion in my mind. I was going to say, here's a six-hour demand gen conversation. Yeah. So this is, this is a totally different thing. So, and I have customers talk to me, like a lot of my customers talk to me about this. And they'll be like, okay, we have this positioning. So should we be using that in our outbound inside sales rep script to try to hook a customer. And I'm like, not really, right? Like, not really. Because all we're trying to do is hook them in, right? So if I'm doing outbound stuff and I'm trying to do demand gen, and I'm trying to get you to agree to do that first call, I got to think about what can entice you to say yes to that. And my experience with that is every company is very, very, very different. I had some, I had one, the last company where I was an actual employee, um, we were selling to the head of Omnichannel at large, large retailers. And we did stuff on LinkedIn where we reach out to the head of Omnichannel. And our pitch was, hey, you know, I, and we'd have it so that it looked like the CEO doing the outreach. <laughs> so the CEO would reach out and say, uh, hey, I'm so-and-so. And our CEO used to run a big e-commerce brand. So he's a little bit famous, right? He would reach out on LinkedIn and say, hey, you know, like I've got this new company, whatever. I see you run Omnichannel at Macy's or whatever. If you give me 15 minutes, I'd love to show you what we're doing. And then he'd name one of their existing customers. And that would usually get us the meeting. And then we'd book the meeting. But before the meeting, we would do a qualifying call with that person. So we'd be looking for, do they have the budget? Are they the right person in the organization? Do we need to invite somebody else? And then we would get them on that thing. But it, it, every company is totally different how you get that hook to get them in. Like Level Jump, you know what they used to do for how about this is great. They had a guy that would look through, they had a, a target account list of fast growing tech companies that they were going after. And then they would look on LinkedIn and they'd look for salespeople that basically got fired. Like salespeople that came in, didn't work out and came out. And then they would take the names of those salespeople and put it in the subject line. And then they would send it to the head of sales enablement and say, re Joe Blow John Brown. And so everybody opens that email because <laughs> you're like, what is going on? And then they it makes open me the, so happy. Right. And then they'd open the email and then they'd say, hey, like, you know, I see, oh, there's the other qualifier was you needed to have X number of open headcount for sales, which was a qualifier. So we say, hey, we see you've got 10 open headcount for new sales reps. Want to make sure that those sales reps don't fail like Joe Blow and John, whatever. Yeah. That's what we do. Give us a half hour. We'll teach you that. Right. We would do very, very similar. We would, if they were on ProfitWell, we would, there was a QA script that would run that would calculate how much money they were losing to churn. And if they weren't on ProfitWell, based on their like SEO data, we could calculate like their size and stuff like that. 
and we would put, you're losing $14.2,000 a month or whatever it is. You're going to open that, man. And everyone's going to open that, right? <laughs> we, we push it a little far in some places. We're experimenting with subject lines, but like that personalization type data, like the names, I would, I would a oh, thousand percent open that. A thousand percent. You'd be like, what's yeah. going on? And it's yeah. not going to be good. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, so I think you have to figure out what's your hope. Like you got to kind of crawl inside the mind of the champion in your account and say, what makes them open an email? And what makes them say, okay, this is a fair exchange of value. Like I'll take this meeting because I'm going to get something out of this, even if I don't want to, because I hate sales pitches and I don't want to sit in your stupid sales pitch, but I want to hear where I'm losing that whatever thing. I want to hear like, you know, I am, I do have 10 open headcount and I am kind of in trouble if they all turn out like the last two guys did. Yeah, I'll give you a half an hour for that. How does this connect with product-led growth? A lot of the companies that I work with do have product-led growth, like there's a product only motion at some point in the funnel, but then there's sales at some point. If you're a strictly zero touch sales model, generally I don't work with those companies because unless you have very, very good data about how customers make decisions, otherwise we don't have enough to do the positioning work. But if you have a salesperson involved somewhere, even if it's later on, those companies tend to know a lot about how customers make decisions and we have enough to work on there. So, for example, one of my clients is Postman. You know, Postman is an yeah. API development platform. So they have very product-led growth. Like, you know, they start with individual people inside the organization, but they'll watch until there's a certain number of individual people using the stuff. And then their sales reps will come in over top and try to sell them an enterprise-wide license. That positioning that happens in that call is super, super important. If there's a salesperson somewhere in there, like what's that salesperson doing? How are they getting like product-led growth doesn't just mean, oh, oh everybody's just going to pick my stuff because they did a little trial with me or they've been using my thing. Like doesn't always happen like that. Like if it was all that easy, like me sitting on a beach drinking out of a coconut instead of doing podcast number 12 yeah. today. The beach is overrated. Yeah. I can speak for that as well. <laughs> we both are beach bound. It's overrated. <laughs> Anyways. On this very deep tank, see results from your wires that they're on. Reposition of Yep. Yeah. How long does it take to see results from repositioning work? Oh, so this is like the bane of my existence, right? Because back when I was a VP marketing, most of the companies I worked at were very enterprise software, like larger deal sizes, and so our sales cycle would be six months, eight months, sometimes a year. How do I know if this new positioning is working or not? In general, I think that the earliest signal you get is it feels better in a first sales call. And you can actually feel it. And what, But your benchmark is the old pitch. So all you're going for is a pitch that's better than the old pitch that we know we've made some progress. I don't know if it's the best pitch. I don't know if it's perfect pitch. But you can generally see it, and I guarantee your best sales rep knows it. So if I'm doing the testing with my best sales rep, and we're doing a few calls, if your best sales rep says, nope, you know what? The old pitch was better. We failed. That's a fail. We failed. But if we do a bunch and the rep is comfortable with the thing, and they've done it a bunch, usually the rep will come back and say, "I got th that's way more excitement than I typically see in this call. Like your best sales rep is actually a really good judge of whether this story is working better. That's why I like to do it in a live sales call rather than let's make some messaging and A-B test it on a website because now I'm testing all kinds of stuff. Now I'm testing wording and what's that traffic and font and all this other crap. Whereas a live sales call, I can tell, like, is a customer going, wait, so you're what? And like, how does that work? Are they getting frustrated because they don't get it? 
you know, or are they kind of leaning in and going, wow, that's amazing. If you do a dozen sales calls, you will feel whether it's better. And for sure, your best rep will know. Yes, sir. For site buyer, ciao. How to convince your partners to environment the fact that even if you were, we are scored with enterprise, so it's a whole story. And now there is a lot of uh, rejection about the, the SaaS way of sale and evidence it all to me then. And if you say it one more time, I'm sorry. Say your question one more time. Hey, we again, I'll take all things to Barthers for sale by channel. Like a reseller partner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you convince reseller partners to take the pitch? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, again, I think enabling a reseller partner is a bit like enabling your own sales force. So you don't actually start with all your partners. You start with the partner that's the most committed. And then you go to the partner that's the most committed and you say, look, we have this thing and, you know, we think this is going to work, but work with us on this and let's validate it. So give me your best sales yeah, rep. Yeah, yeah, let's yeah. go in. Let's try it. If, you know, if we pitch it a whole bunch of time and your best sales rep says this is shit and the old pitch is better, fine. We're going to leave you alone and do the old pitch. But we actually want you to sell more. So let's go ahead. And then once you got your best partner working. Hey, our best partner is doing this. Right. Yeah, and you yeah, go yeah. to the other ones and say, well, these guys are doing it and they're on fire. Like we already know this works. Do you want more money? Yeah. Right. Would you like more money? Because they're making way more money with this. Then it's easier to do the other ones. Is it shitty against the peppers, right? And saying, hey, here's the market. Here's what they're good at. Here's what they're good at. Pretty sweet though. Holding on though. It's how sales. Pretty not ever great. That's a good question. So positioning against or in the context of competitors, are you doing that just in the sales pitch? Is it another collateral versus pages? What are we doing? Yeah, so if you're doing this well, there's loads of ways you can leverage this in your marketing. So I've seen people basically take that exact same sales pitch structure and do it in an explainer video. Explainer video works really well. I've seen people build a buyer's guide. This, in my opinion, this is the thing that is the most underused and yet always works piece of marketing collateral for B2B, especially if it's enterprise, is a buyer's guide. I don't understand why everybody doesn't have one, but a buyer's guide can totally do that. I think it's because most companies, probably most companies of the size here, aren't enterprise companies. Therefore, right. they don't know what those things are. Yeah, buyer's guide. You can do it in a buyer's guide. Highest I see, converting piece of content you have. It's always good. Not in terms of, maybe not volume, but in terms it of conversion. It always works. And like, that was like my secret weapon. Every time you hired me as the VP marketing, I would show up again. I've got this great idea. Let's do a buyer's guide. And then, oh, it's on fire. And everyone's like, oh, you're a super genius. I'm like, dude, I did it at every single company. Um, so buyer's guide is one. The other thing is, gosh, it's getting late in the day. That's okay. Postman. We did the positioning stuff and then the, the CEO from Postman wrote a long blog post about here's how we see the market. And they sort of had this galvanizing idea. He called it an API first world. And he was like, here's what the API first world looks like. And we think this, right? So he sort of wrote this big, long blog post and then they built a graphic novel. So look it up. Postman graphic it's novel. Super Mario Brothers, basically. It, it, yeah. That's my pipe joke. It, like, so there's a lot of things you can do. He actually took that positioning and they represented the positioning in this really beautiful product graphic. So they, they, they built a picture basically that said, here's all the things we do inside this box. And here's other companies that do all those piece part things. And here's all the stuff we don't do outside the box. And here's all the vendors there. So we compete with these people and not with these people. It's a genius piece of content. Well, it's also like, if you're going to do this, you're going to have to support all this, which those partners appreciate. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah. So just jot and dives. I think great. there's a lot of ways that you can, that this story can get represented in your marketing material if you're willing to be really creative about it 
and you keep in and you're thinking about this idea like my customers don't understand this market so what can i do to help them understand the market explainer video buyer's guide whatever graphics like i think there's lots of things you could do a massive thank you to april dunford for doing this podcast now you have what it takes to craft a winning sales pitch Today, we talked about why positioning isn't about market research, how to actualize positioning, the structure of a solid sales pitch, enabling your sales team with a new pitch, and a Q&A from SaaSDoc 2022. Make sure to give Protect the Hustle a five-star review and tell us what lesson April taught you from today's episode. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from Paddle Studios, dedicated to helping you build better SaaS.